Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. So it's a pleasure to have with us today economist uh, Brian Kaplan from George Mason University and author of two of my favorite books, The Case Against Education and more, more recently, Open Borders. There's other books as well, but I've just mentioned those being two that I, that I really enjoy, Brian. So welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Carlos. So with all of these conversations, I'm starting by asking the question of, let's get ourselves back to March and, and trying to understand from your perspective, when did you notice or if you, or if you thought that this was a big deal and, and how would you, what was information and models or, or what was in front of you that convinced you that, okay, this is serious, this is going to be bad, how bad is going to be and, and sort of talk through a little bit how you thought about the policies being put in front of us in the very beginning. Let's see. So, I mean, I had been very vaguely paying attention to news in January and February, but I honestly did figure it would end up being something like Ebola or SARS, where it's limited to one small area of the world and otherwise would have no important effect on me personally anyway. Uh, and then I would say, honestly, I, I started getting just a little bit nervous when I was traveling to Latin America in February, and I just noticed a lot of people uh, the, uh, working in the airport in masks. I was like, hmm, I've never seen that before. Uh, but again, I think that I probably still shrugged it off and said, well, people are crazy, right? Which I, I still believe, but doesn't, they're not crazy all the time. And then I guess uh, when I got back, I talked to a few people whose judgment I trust a lot on matters like this, especially my colleague Robin Hansen across the hall. And he was saying how, even though he agreed that usually disasters, uh, predicted disasters do not really transpire. He said this one was different and I did start paying attention then. And then I really did see, and especially in the course the social reaction, which happened much sooner than any significant number of actual deaths or sickness, but just when you know, schools started closing and trips started being canceled. And I think actually I was really shocked when Disneyland closed. I'm from Los Angeles, like Disneyland closed, you closed Disneyland. So that these were the things that got me paying attention to the numbers. And then once I started paying attention to the numbers, I would say that I stopped paying attention to most of the other things, which I knew were just anecdotal experiences and don't prove much of anything. But did start looking at the numbers and saw how the number of cases and the deaths started rising in a way that was very similar to what people who were, I would say, the, like the moderate pessimists predicted. You know, the extreme pessimists predicting millions of deaths uh, they, uh, they still seem crazy to me. And again, and of course, if they had said it'll happen unless we do the following things, then it might maybe be different. But I think that many of the pessimists were just saying this is going to happen. So, and those people, I would say, have been shown to be wrong. So I guess that's um, how most of my thinking in the early phases went anyway. So when you're thinking then in the early phases, when you start seeing things like uh, voluntary choices by people, like just closing Disneyland or the NBA deciding, that was something that struck me as like, whoa, the NBA is going to stop? Okay, that's that's uh, that's going to be hard. And I was teaching at the time a class in Chicago and, and, and you know, we couldn't fly anymore. And that was some something that that was very surprising to me. I'm mean, not surprising, but it was definitely hit it home, right? That, okay, this is happening. But those are all voluntary choices. Yeah. Um, in terms of policies being put in place, um, how were you thinking about the choices that were, you know, they were given to us. We were given this choice of, of this seemed to be like a dichotomy of extremes. And, and, and how would you, you know, what were your reaction to those at first as, as an economist? 
I mean, I would say that I don't think there really was a dichotomy. It was more of a, a near unanimity if we have to go and do something very extreme. And honestly, we really have to go and emulate communist China, uh, which, uh, you know, again, like, you know, what almost every country on earth has done is not normal, right? Or at least it wasn't normal until communist China made it normal. And uh, if you know any history, anything about the history of communist China, I would never consider it a country to emulate really in almost any way. Um, but uh, so, yeah, so in, in terms of the, you know, the extremism of the reaction, that's something that I did notice. And yeah, you know, that uh, bothered me very much. Uh, just the way that people wanted to just shut everything down without really indiscriminately, without distinctions between, well, what are high risk and low risk activities? What are ways that you can mitigate the risk? So again, to me, like as an economist, I'm always thinking not, is it safe? There's nothing really safe ever, right? You know, you can be hit by a bus just walking down the street. So it's really, what are the odds? What are the actual risks? And actually one of the earliest things that I was doing was actually trying to look into infection mortality rates and notice, you know, there's a big difference between case mortality rates, which is just number of people died compared to the number of people that have been that tested positive versus infection mortality. When you actually know that someone's sick, what are the odds that they die? And especially realizing that there's enormous selection bias because the people that get measured are generally the really worst cases. So, I mean, I was very concerned there and it took me, you know, very quickly, I did see this point that the infection mortality rate varied very tremendously by age, which then very immediately led me to think, well, Shouldn't it be that young people keep living normally, more or less, and old people then isolate, and rather than having everybody isolate? So that was my immediate reaction. And then when I learned more about how important underlying conditions are, and it even doesn't seem so much that age per se is the, is the key issue other than older people with more underlying conditions. But you know, once I realized that, I say it's even clearer. Now it should be the people that have underlying conditions who generally will be old, though not always, who should be very careful and again other people should live a basically normal life both because it's very costly to ask people and bridge their freedom but then also the point of having healthy people catch it uh, does move us closer to what we call herd immunity as to how far you have to go in order to get there it's a complicated question but what i say is you know it's a continuous variable so you know if you have you know there is less infection when 20% of the population has, has, is immune than when 0%. So just saying, well, look, if we can just move along that dimension, basically getting healthy people sick and then having them recover is has a very similar effect to getting more people to wear masks. You know, or more people vaccinated. That's the same is, is the idea of like, that's a, an effective way to get a vaccine, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Um, and I guess you know, also you know, along the way, you know, my colleague Robin Hansen, again, he was looking into Variolation? You know, yeah, you know, so, you know, something called you know, variolation, basically just giving people low doses, which is you know, like very similar to a vaccine, right? And uh, you know, people got very upset at him, of course, as they almost always do whenever he makes <laughs> an original point, uh, good or bad, right? But usually yeah. good in my view. Um, so, so yeah. So one of the one of the the, the, the professions that I've been particularly disappointed with throughout this was was economists and and the reason for it is because you know economists are always very 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 careful at least tend to be very careful in thinking about the sort of unintended consequences of doing something and in this one we were were you know yes very quickly i think became available the the, the data that yes the older and people with pre-existing conditions are the most vulnerable most of us are not most of us are not going to die of this and and if, if anything the risk is actually very comparable to other uh, respiratory infections that we face routinely, right? So, so that that or even if it's five times, it's still even if it's five times, it's so low, right? It's five flus, 
Right, right, exactly. So I can get a year of five flus, and chances are I'm not going to die, right? <laughs> and and but 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 then then we're looking at this thing where um, okay, we're gonna the policy are put in place, the policy being proposed and implemented, and I feel that the majority of the profession was like, oh yeah, no, that seems to make sense without really focusing or hammering on the underlying the sort of uh, 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 the, the consequences and the things, the costs really that we're gonna bear associated with this. There are few voices that were very loud on this. But I would describe them very, you know, few. There are not the mainstream voices and voices that were, you know, uh, are still being deemed locked down skeptics or something like that, right? Anti-scientists in some ways. Um, do you have the similar impression on, on, on the profession? Yes. So I guess that my opinion of my fellow economists peaked around 2007 and has been going downward ever since. Um, so I guess I was not surprised. I mean, you know, like, like, you know, ultimately, like I, I've long known that the table economist is a normal human being first and an economist second or third or fourth. And there's also been a, you know, you know, two big moves in the last 20 years in economics. So one is that there's been a, a move, move in a, a more left-wing direction. Again, like, you know, economics was always left-wing overall, but, it, but the balance used to be something like three to two for Democrat-Republican ratio. So it was one where even though the left-wing view was predominant still, it, it was a very mild predominance and there's a lot more room for other views. And over time, especially with the next generation of economists, it's been replaced with a very heavily left-wing uh, de demographic. So there's that. And the other thing is that as the focus of economics has moved towards uh, you know, doing empirical work and just focusing very heavily on getting proper causal identification in your paper, there has just been a great forgetting of the fundamental tools of economics like cost-benefit analysis and expected value and just, just the, the idea that economics is primarily a grammar of thinking. It's a way that you organize, organize your thoughts. Again, this is not lost entirely, but the share of economists that when they hear they have to take a precaution in order to achieve a benefit, who now say, well, wait, how, like, how good, like, like, what is the actual size of the benefit? What is the, how much does it reduce the risk? How much is the gain? I think that has diminished considerably from where it would have been in you know, 70s or 80s or even 90s. And so I think that's another thing. But I mean, there I, was, I already did realize how things had gotten worse. And you know, it's very you know, disappointing, but uh, unfortunately, uh, there's not too much I can do about it other than to say that there was that we used to know better. We used to have a better way. And, we're, and also, like, why aren't you teaching your students the right way to think? Why aren't you teaching them economic thinking? And yes, I know that it's hard to teach people how to think, but Good God, try. At least you need to try, right, right, exactly. Uh, I, I think you're right here, I think it was in maybe June 1st, uh, I'm gonna quote you here for a second, um, that you accept a strong presumption in favor of human liberty. You cannot rightfully shut businesses and order people to stay at home out of an abundance of caution. Instead, the burden of the advocates of these policies to demonstrate that their benefits dr drastically exceed their costs by at least five to one. And nobody did that, nobody even tried to, 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 to talk about that, right? I mean, that, that's to me is so clear with the point that, you know, I shouldn't be here as an interviewer telling what I believe, but that's that's what frustrated me the most. Like without any uh, uh, indication of the trade-offs we're facing, these decisions as draconian as they come, right? That this has been um, as yeah. extreme as they come. Yeah. So, in the, uh, you know, again, that sounds quite right to me. Let's see, what was I thinking about all of that? Oh yes. 
Uh, so here's the thing. I mean, I think most people would hear those words that I wrote and say, well, this is just you know dogmatic libertarian who says right. <laughs> he's only going to go and support these violations of his principles if you uh, get over a near insurmountable barrier. And what I would say is actually this test that I'm talking about is one that most people use actually for anything they take seriously. So if someone came out with a cost-benefit analysis saying that banning Satanism would, would just pass a cost-benefit test by 5%, I think almost no one who ever cared about free speech would say, all right, fine, let's round up the Satanists now. Instead, they say, look, that's not enough. They, like, it's one thing if we got to round them up to go and prevent the satan and, like, a series of massive satanic attacks or something. But otherwise, like, even if, yes, it turns out that every Satanist really messes up their family and their parents are miserable and, and you know, it causes suicides because people can't handle the fact their kids become a Satanist. Even so, like, we've really got, you really got to show an enormous benefit of bending this principle. I think that, that applies to almost any principle that anyone really cares about. So to me, the idea that you wouldn't care about the principle of don't go and tell people they can't leave their homes, right? That seems at least as important as you, you're the freedom to practice Satanism. And, and, and do, do you share the view that I think a lot of people defend those policies still on like, you know, there was a moment in time where we didn't know enough about it. There was so much uncertainty. The unknowns were too large. And, and there was a fear of looking what was happening in Northern Italy perhaps what was about to happen in New York City, of, of our inability to process the cases. So like a shutdown, let's say, of two weeks was something that would lead at least to an avoidance of the hospitals being overwhelmed and, and with the flatten the curve idea, right? So that was like, I think, the way those policies were advocated. This is like a temporary thing to just flatten the curve. Um, yeah. Your reaction to that? Again, of course, I'd say that doing it for two weeks is a lot less unjustifiable than doing it for months. Yeah, but even there, I, I would say, so this is the same reasoning as round up all the Japanese uh, after December 7th, because, look, they're probably fine, but let's have an abundance of, of, of caution. Round them all up. How do we know there isn't at least one terrorist cell among the Japanese? And again, I would say, all right, yes, I understand that point. And yes, things are confusing right now, but that's not good enough. And if, that, and if you think that things like that are good enough, then really you are going to be doing one terrible thing after another, right? And I mean, ultimately it comes down to the terrible things that are popular will happen <laughs> and the terrible things that are unpopular probably won't, but really bad things can be popular. It's uh, the, uh, the, the, what, I, what I like to call the hysteria and herding of the population. It really does move around quite dramatically in response to crazy events. So, you know, like, you know the, you know, this reaction could have been much stronger after 9-11, for example. So, and um, I do actually remember after 9-11, some people saying, well, you know, I mean, this is actually, I don't even think it was even a joke saying, look, we don't really know which countries behind this. Let's just attack a bunch of Middle Eastern countries. <laughs> right. And it's like out of an abundance of caution, let's just invade, you know, like, invade a bunch of places. And right, like, right. All right. So, so you do realize the horrible things that you're talking about here and, you know, like it just seems, it seems to me like that's not sufficient, but or even close to go and justify this kind of thing. What, what I would say in the in the even the reaction of 9/11, right? There was there was a a we didn't face dictatorial powers doing those mm -hmm. things to our lives. It was something that you know you had a president reacted very strongly to it, and all of it got voted by Congress, and yeah. and you know we might disagree with the way that our representatives decided to do something, but it got voted by a legislative body where. We've been living through a system where we have 50 despots plus one, 
Yeah. And what's really funny is that there's a lot of people like arguing that the one despot should have been more strong throughout the whole thing. It's like, sure, sure. really, that one? You want to tell, give more power to the one despot? <laughs> I mean, so, so my, my dad is very, you know, is always inclined to blame China for anything wrong in the world. And in this case, he really wanted to blame them for the, the entire, for the entire pandemic. Right. And again, you know, the question I mean, so what is it that you wanted them to do? So, you know, like, I think you heard stories about how they suppressed it for, you know, the news for a couple of weeks. Of course, the they is, so like, it, didn't, it was not clear that it was like the, like the very highest level, like you've got local people suppressing it. But in any case, uh, you know, like, it was given that most countries didn't do very much during that time. Uh, you know, like, you know, I guess suppose your model could be that uh, the other countries will react you know, eight weeks after the Chinese officially react, but it's not clear why that would be your model rather than they react four weeks after it's clear that it's a serious problem, something like that, in which right, case right. I'll see that China delayed anything. But again, like when we thinking about the way that my dad reacted, if China had done something drastic, like, Foreigners can't leave Wuhan either. We don't we don't break the quarantine just because you're not a citizen. Everyone has to stay here. I mean, again, that's the kind of thing that I think would have been a major international incident. And yet, that you know, out of all the things that China could could have done, I think that is be helpful. Yeah, that's the one thing I think that that actually could have really you know, tipped the balance if they just said no one and no one gets out until the quarantine is over. Um, I mean, the amount of of international blowback that would have caused, I think, would have been enormous. I mean, I doubt that would have caused World War III, but I would have been still like pulling my collar, like 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 two percent chance of World War III over this if China just said, you know, like like no way, we're doing it our way, tough luck, right? Let me pick up on this point because this point is a point of of I think that a lot of people that even uh, uh, was okay with the extension of the lockdowns as as we had in the country. It's like you know we say, well, if China could have could have could have uh, not mitigated this, but really suppressed the virus, right? If they had locked down Wuhan somehow, you know, there is a state of the world where this could be suppressed there. Mm-hmm. And and I think that there's a lot that we're learning now. Even places that did that, it seems that it's almost like a losing battle. It doesn't seem to be possible. Australia is seeing like a huge huge ramp up in cases now after what effectively an island was able to 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 keep it under control and and suppress it. Um, so and that's the part that I I I. At least, you know, I think there was a big shift in the goalposts of we're, ta- we're trying to sh- uh, to flatten the curve to now let's try to keep it shut to mitigate to to uh, uh, suppress this end the virus and you know cold viruses are really hard to mitigate to to suppress they just apparently are incredibly resilient and they're going to be around us and and that's why I think it's it's to me very frustrating to to be looking at the the the, the recurrent ask for lockdowns as. It's just like, what are you trying to accomplish at this point? Aren't you just pushing those infections to the future? And perhaps maybe you're just hoping that a vaccine shows up first. How do you, how do you think that 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 sort of um, the, the idea out there? Right. So, I mean, the view that um, you know delaying actually has saved a lot of lives just because even though we don't have vaccine, we've got better antivirals and better treatment. That may be true. So, I mean, I've tried looking into it and it didn't seem clearly wrong. But on the other hand, the people that were really optimistic they like and told me things are great. Like it wasn't clear that their claims were checking out either. So again, I really am not too clear on that. In terms of whether it just can be like you know completely you know, completely cut it, like whether we actually could just get rid of it. So there again, you know, it seems like there you know there's some countries they managed to get it down to such a small fraction of where it was that it does seem at least plausible that they could drive it into extinction. But at least with it for one for a country. Uh, but then there's the question of what do you do about relations with the rest of the world? So, uh, again, you know, like country, you know, so 
you know, like this is something where I am not super confident, but this seemed to me that like Germany got the number of cases down really low. And then at least supposedly their contract tracing teams were, you know, so good. So, you know, they were actually, and you know, they had enough of them relative to the problem that a lot of times they don't have anything to do anymore. Right. So if you could actually have something like that, it's you know, fairly modest cost to be able to go and just get and just hold things down, especially given that Germany still is open to all these other European countries. That's uh, pretty striking that anyone's able to do it. So I usually you know, like what I've, what I've said recently is, you know, they're not the borders, no, uh, but, yeah, but, well, so, but I don't think they, but the borders are not still closed as far no, as they're open now. Yeah. Yeah. And they, and they actually are, are they, they are suffering from cases coming from Spain apparently. And they're, and they're struggling a bit with that. Right. Right, right. But immediately, like, you know, one of my main thoughts is, you know, like, if you're not confused, you, really, you just don't understand what's going on. So I said, like, I wouldn't be surprised when three months, every country managed to get it down to the same level that Germany's got it in. I wouldn't be surprised when three months, every country is doing as badly as the United States or Brazil. And I'm just like, honestly, I'm just pretty confused with this situation. And, you know, like, I noticed that people who pontificate almost never have any concrete prediction. They almost uh, like almost never say anything that can be definitely shown to be right or wrong, much less put some money on it and stake the reputation on the line. So, I mean, I think honestly, the like you know the amount of of, of, of respect that I give, even you know for people who say professionally they're doing it, but fine, you're professional, so you know more than other people do. So say something specific. Give me a number. Give me a date. Right, and give and, and put some money on it, and you know stake your reputation. This is what's going to happen. Right to me, when someone says I'm an expert, but all, but I'm just going to go and speak in platitudes. So well, the experts have said it, and, and they've, they've used numbers. They're like, they've been, I mean, either it's coming or they were absolutely wrong, right? Uh, 2. Well, 2. So 2. So die, 2. 2 million people are going to die in the U.S. They said it by a date. They even said by July, 2.2 million people in the U.S. are going to die. Normally, when they say that, if you actually pay attention, they have a bunch of qualifying words, could die. Good. <laughs> 2.2 million could die. What, what I like about here's, that here's one is my that prediction. 2.2 million could die. It's like, okay, yeah, like I completely agree. 2.2 million could die, right? Or they'll, or they'll have like, unless we go and take drastic measures, 2.2 million will die, right? So normally, again, like normally, when, you know, people that are in the public eye have an instinct to avoid saying anything that can ever be demonstrably shown to be wrong. Uh, so, you know, which is a big point of Phil Tetlock's fantastic book, Super Forecasting, right, right, where right. you realize, look, anyone who does that, you really should, they do not deserve your time. They don't deserve your attention. They don't deserve respect. Real people don't say what could happen. They say what will happen. They give you a date, they give you numbers, and also and they give you probabilities and they give you money if they're wrong. Too. Well, but that's the issue, right? Those people go, went in and even making those statements, they convinced a lot of our governments to do radical things. They're convincing our governments to, to, yeah. to, to not open schools for the rest of the year. Yeah. Now, now, as far as I know, I don't know of any, like, maybe, maybe I missed it, but I don't know of any state legislature in the U.S. that has tried to take back powers from governors. So is there any legislature? There is one. There is one. So, so, so the, the, I think that was, was not a legislator, but it was a court. So the Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, court, court. Court's different. Court's I like, like, right. we're, 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 and, but, but that's because of a legislative act, right? Trying to say, you know, like where they were even trying to push forward a measure saying the governor, the governor has become a dictator and you can't do this stuff without our permission and we don't give permission. But, but it was actually very interesting. I don't think people paid enough attention to this is that the legislator in Wisconsin has a, the, 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 the what they call the emergency powers of the governor 
have to be justified on a rulemaking basis. So they actually have an administrative law procedure to justify the existence of those, of those powers. So they can give you for two weeks, but then after that, you have to go and, and do some justification for their emergency powers. And it turns out that the data available here was not enough to pass the bar of what we call, you know, so then oh, the court said, you know, you cannot continue this unless you go through the rulemaking process. The government gave up. So I was like, oh, I can't do it. Um, because, you know, I don't, <laughs> this is made up. I don't, I don't have, this is like, you know, a bad flu. Um, I shouldn't say that because I got rid of Trump when I say that. Um, but, but that's, that's essentially what, what, you know, what gave the, the legislature, the, what gave, stopped the, the governor of Wisconsin to continue the emergency powers that he had in place. Um, so, all right. So let's fast forward to now. Like what, 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 how do we read? In fact, I should go back a little bit. You wrote something a while ago talking about what you were doing. So again, putting your money on, on you know, uh, where your mouth is here. So how did you handle personally some of the stuff lately? You wrote about it and you told why you're doing it. And, and you're surprised by the fact that a lot of smart people that you know were not acting in, in that way. Right. Um, so, so to tell us a little bit, how did you interpret the evidence and how did you act upon that, that evidence? Yeah, some of you, like I say, you know, like there's the meta point of the way you think about things and then there's the actual concrete behavior. So what really surprises me is when smart people don't think in terms of probabilities. So when smart people just say, look, scientists have found there's a risk of walking through a room that someone, that a sick person breathed in. I say, okay, well, like I'd be amazed if they didn't find that there was a risk, but how big is that risk? Right. And so like, like, you know, is there any actual, like, like, is it like, is there evidence that at this level, that this dosage, that this is actually going, that this ever gets people sick? What are the odds that it gets people sick? Right. So that's the kind of thing that really surprised me when smart people were, you know, like smart people, especially people that are that normally have quantitative ability, just started talking like normal people. Right. And, you know, you know the kind we have of thing, a duty, we have a duty, right? <laughs> Anything thing we're saying like like any risk is too high, or again just like you know just saying there is a risk like this is or, or, or like using hyperbolic language this is too dangerous, or just imagine what would happen if someone that you knew died, right? And again like these are all the kinds of questions where I would say quantitative people need to be trained to to, to say those are terrible questions to ask. They are ones that make people that, that, that confuse people and prevent them from thinking clearly because everything you do can lead to, to your death and the deaths, the deaths of other people around you. So it's a question of what are the actual odds that you should be focused on? And if you're not interested in those odds, then I would just say it's very hard to take anything you say seriously. Uh, so I mean, that's sort of the meta point of you know, the number of people that were just not thinking in a quantitative way. Uh, and then in terms of these the civics. So, see, like on the civics, I can much more understand. So, like if I had a friend who said, no, "I'm still pretty worried," and here, you know, here are my reasons why, or I still think this is a prudent measure, and they went through the math, you know, that then I think we could still have a very good conversation. But uh, you know, what I, what I basically wound up doing is uh, trying to find the most up-to-date numbers on infection mortality rate by age, by health status, and then figuring out how that compares for me to things that I already do routinely, like driving a car. Right, and again, by you know, by my by my math, my you know, my COVID risk is probably literally, you know, like like basically. And then, well, of course, the other thing is, even if you try to stay very safe, you can still get it. And of course, even if you start living in a uh, in a more relaxed way, you very very likely will never get it. Right. So I say, all right. So let's you know, ballpark. So suppose that changing my behavior to you know, live in like a ninety percent normal way would move my infection rate or my infection probability from fifteen to forty percent. So then, then you're talking about something like, I think like a, like a year's worth of driving risk, which to me is not bad, right? And especially realizing that 
when I'm driving, I'm often risking the lives of all my children, right? Uh, who actually, I would honestly, I'd rather that I died than one of them died. And you know, they're all kids, so their risk is really low. So when we put it that way, so like in terms of the familiar risk, I just don't see that this is very risky to my family. Now again, I'm not blind to the possibility of infecting someone that is higher risk. And you know, what I say is, you know, there's a lot of common sense measures that you can take there. Most obviously, just avoiding contact with people that are high risk, or if you know they're high risk, then saying, well, like, 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 like we should probably avoid contact. Or of course, there's also asking, so like, are you high risk? And then, like, I'm happy to go and accommodate you in ways that seem reasonable to you, right? So those are all ways that I would handle and have handled these things. And you know, at the same time, you know, saying, look, if you're very high risk, then it is reasonable to say that you should be the one that's taking extra precaution. And there's no reason to be resentful of that uh, compared to other people. So you'd say, yes, if everybody would just, if the world would just revolve around me, I could live my life and everyone else would, would stay inside. So yes, well, that's not a reasonable expectation to put upon strangers. You know, as for moderate things. So, you know, I've said, if I, if I see someone wearing a mask, then I try to try, then I try to stay further away from them because I take that as a sign that they're worried, right? So I don't want to upset anyone or make anyone nervous. On the other hand, I'm not going to go and wear a mask outside to take a hike just because someone is terrified of seeing me 100 feet away. Right, or because a governor told you to do so, right? Yes. Uh, you know, you know, they're honestly, you know, everyone breaks laws every day. <laughs> that might have actually stopped during the quarantine because people are inside. So maybe they're not breaking laws every day. But anytime you're actually moving around, interacting with other people, you're always breaking laws. You are always breaking the law when you're driving, practically. I, I've never met a human being who actually follows traffic laws in any scrupulous way because the laws are unreasonable and ridiculous. And really, they are there so the police can go and hassle people whenever they want to for other, you know, really for other reasons, rather than to actually go and enforce the law per se. So yeah, so my view is you know, when laws are stupid, people already break them routinely. And honestly, I don't see anything wrong with this. And I do it too, and I'm happy to do it. So, so a point that, that, that I think escape a lot of even economists writing about this is something you mentioned that, that well, you're going out, you're doing, you, you understand the risk that you face. And, and I just, just uh, you mentioned a year of worse of driving, probably driving is the most dangerous thing that you do on a routine basis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not trivial that you're adding that, right? But again, you start from such a low level. And I would say that the latest calculation that I've been looking at, I think is some, one way to look at a COVID risk for people in our age bracket without conditions is something like adding somewhere between two or 20 days in a year. So just so like normal right. life, you just, the years a little longer. That's true. That's way below what I figured, what I calculated about six weeks ago. Right, right. But, um, it, so, it, I mean, as you know, so, you know, like if you, if you send it to me, I'm very curious. I'd like, you know, like, so. No, I'll find the reference. That's based on British numbers. So maybe, you know, we need to be a little careful, careful with, with, with that. But, 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 the, but the point that I was trying to make British is. British numbers sound pretty good to me, actually. They are. That's right. That's right. I mean, if I had to either generalize about my own risk from New York City or the entire country of Britain. I think I'd rather do Britain, right? Yeah, yep, that's right. That's right. Um, but, but the point, the point that I was going to make about, about, you know, one of the, one of the issues that people say, well, but you making your own choice is creating an externality. That's like a thing that we like to talk about in economics. And externality is that by you going out, you might increase the, the, the transmission of the virus and therefore another vulnerable person might get it and die. More people will die as a result of your choices of, of, of going out, right? You're not bearing the cost uh, of that. But, but I think that's not necessarily the whole way to think about this, because as we talked about earlier, people like you and me getting infected is actually perhaps a positive externality. 
yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, and and that has been sort of completely lost in the in the discussion of this. Uh, well, you're positive if you, if you can do it responsibly. Exactly. Positive <laughs> well, responsibly. You know, then you isolate. So, which again is just what I would do. I mean, I remember lately, even in March, I asked my wife, "All right, so what is our plan if one of us gets sick? What are we doing?" Right, and that's actually where a lot of the stuff on dose response function well, yeah, was relevant to me because okay, what we don't want to do is put a bunch of sick kids together in a small room. So if one of them gets sick, like, like each person should be spread out of the house as much as possible, open up the windows. And, there, and that way you don't wind up getting a really high dosage of it in the same place. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, of course, like, like with any externality, of course, driving is an externality and no sober person says they should, you should never drive. Right. It's one thing to say, you know, like take, preca- you know, take precautions, look both ways, don't drive too fast. These are all things that prudent people do and that I'm happy to do, you know, not just for my own safety, but the safety of other vulnerable people, pedestrians and so on. But when someone, if someone said never drive because you could hurt someone, there's an externality. I say that's, that's crazy, and again, like you, like you're you're ignoring the enormous cost that you're putting on me, right? Uh, and and I would say the same thing with infection, saying yes, well, you know, if it's a substantial benefit to others that I can give at a modest cost to myself, great. If or other, but if it's the other way around, then I don't think that is so great. I um, mean, yeah, I was actually doing some Twitter polls on like when would you consider something murder. So, you know, like, suppose that you know you're sick and you deliberately cough in somebody's face and they get sick and die. Like, is that murder? And they're like, yeah, probably it is, right? But, you know, how about if you, like, uh, have no symptoms, you stay six feet away from other people, and then someone happened, and then someone uh, happens to get sick as a result, was that murder? And they say, you know, like, that's no, you know, I would say that's no more murder than if you accidentally kill someone riding on your bicycle, or like, like you were doing very reasonable things and yet, once in a long while, something really bad happens when you're behaving responsibly, but it doesn't show that what you're doing is irresponsible. By the way, this is one of the great lessons that economists ought to teach their students more, which is that just because a bad thing happens doesn't mean you should change your level of precaution. That's true. Right? So look, I have a level of precaution. The level of precaution is designed to achieve a certain level of risk. The fact that the risk happens once doesn't show that you weren't cautious enough, and yet course to you know to not economists no, no no like like there was a fire that show that we need more fire precaution it's like well like what is the overall rate of fire if it's like one in a million then maybe this is this is actually a totally acceptable one and we shouldn't do anything right was like, we, call, we call that ex post right so your ex ante decision making was the right one don't, don't ex post evaluate it because that's going to be that's going to be bad right um so two things I want to talk about now, um, just moving a little bit to, to, to schools. That's something that we're, we're having a big policy decision that's taking place right now is like whether or not to open schools. And your work has been a very, and, and I want to quote you, I think, again, here, maybe not perfectly, but, but, but a lot of your work questioning the value of education. Um, it's quoted a lot focusing on high school and college, but I think you, you went out, you were more vocal about it saying, no, 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 no. I question all of it, all the, the whole, and by education, you don't mean teaching people stuff. You mean the way we currently teach people yeah. stuff. Our yeah, like, like, when a politician says we need more money for education, that's what I think of as education. Exactly. Exactly. So, but now here we are, here we are. And somehow we're going to live in a world this fall where I can go out and do anything, literally anything in Texas, mm-hmm. but my schools are going to be closed. Our kids are going to be like literally anything, not going to a bar. I think not going to a bar, but anything else. We can go to college. We can go to a football game in college. My little kid can go to daycare 
but we cannot go to a school to my, my K through 12 schools. Only public school or private schools? Well, to- there's a big fight going on currently. So, so local health authorities are issuing mandates saying that privates cannot open as well, nor charters. And that's a political battle of, of funding, right? You, you don't want people to get unenrolled from, from, from the public. Yeah. So the question is, I guess the question to you, to you is that, is that, um, how do you, you look at this and, and you react to say, okay, well, I knew this is, this is pointless. So, so who cares? Or, or are you particularly worried about, I mean, do, do, you, do you worry about the fact that somehow we're not going to have education in the country for perhaps the entire fall? Um, so how negative do you think of that impact is going to be? In terms of student learning, I would be amazed if you saw any long-run harm in terms of people's math or reading abilities. However, the, you know, the, you know, the, the point that I mostly talk about in you know, high school, college, and, but I also occasionally mention younger grades. So whenever I talk about education, I, I, I always try to be fair. And I say, look, whatever else they do or fail to do, at least, you know, K through eight delivers daycare. Or now I say, it, well, it used to. It used to. So even if they're not learning anything useful, you're just wasting their time making a bunch of stupid posters and singing songs. There are a lot of the kids don't even want to sing songs. I, mean, I have seen plenty of miserable kids being forced to sing songs in schools. <laughs> I mean, like, even if that's going on, say at least... Schools provide daycare where there's a place for kids to go and they can see other kids and someone watches them so their parents can go and do their job and relax. Right? And now it turns out the schools are not even going to provide this one function where I've long said it's an undeniable thing, service that they're providing. So yeah, so I say like if schools aren't even going to be going to open, especially for K through eight, then they are totally worthless at this point. The idea that you're going to do online education for kindergartners is just absurd. Right, so the best case scenario is the parent is to sit there making the kindergartner do the work. So in which case it doesn't save the parent any time, they can't do their job, they can't relax. So why not just at that point, you might as well just do homeschooling and save a lot of time and cut out the middleman. So yeah, it is just a case where the schools want to keep getting enormous amounts of tax dollars. And don't believe people say schools are underfunded. They get an enormous amount of money per student per year. So yeah, like national average years ago was already up to like 12,000 or so. It's so 15 now, it's 15 yes, per yes, up to this enormous level of spending per student on average. And what are they offering you? They're offering you something that's barely better than showing them YouTube videos. So yeah, I think that that's a thought process that now people are having to rip off. And yes, so, you know, like, you know, people saying, like, give the parents back the money and then let, and then let them, let them go and figure out what they want to do with their kids' education. Seems like a huge improvement to me. Uh, so, you know, I've been homeschooling my older kids for years and of course never got a dime back from that. And originally, my younger kids were going to have school open two days a week. And I'm like, all right, maybe that's not terrible, but it would be better than nothing. But anyway, now it was announced in our area that there will be no in-person school whatsoever. So now I'm just going to be homeschooling my kids for at least the first quarter. So yeah, as to why I don't get that money back, right? Or uh, of course, you go further and say, hey, maybe we should just give the taxpayers back their money, right? <laughs> we're not quite the same as the parents. Right, right. We've been you know, ripping off taxpayers for all these years to give uh, for these dubious services, and now we're not even giving you that. So why not just say, look, we like we don't. Our, the rationale for us existing is gone. I mean, I have little doubt that if schools would just re- receive no money if they didn't reopen, I think then they'd be pushing to reopen. Which, by the way, I often heard economists saying things like, "Well, so you're like you're only you're worried about saving lives. What about people's livelihoods?" And whenever I hear this, I say, you have to remember, the people who want things shut down also want the level of redistribution to compensate for the loss to be so high that, uh, that especially low-skilled workers are actually making more money now than they ever did. So they're not worried about their livelihoods very much. 
So there is a reason, you know, so you know, like, you know, I've heard people also say, well, it's not at all clear why the left is more supportive of lockdowns than the right. It could have gone the other way. And I'll say, yeah, it could have gone the other way in a system without redistribution. But once you have very high levels of not only redistribution general, but especially extra emergency redistribution, then it all lines up ideologically because the, la the left likes the idea of people getting paid to not, have to, do, to, to not have to do their job. They don't like the idea that you should have to do, have, a, have, a you know, have a job to get work. They don't appreciate the, uh, the enjoyable consumer products that mo people mostly spend their time paying. Most of what we do is not essential, right? And, so, and of course, yeah, yes, well, it's not essential, but it is, but, but it is enjoyable. Why isn't that good enough? Well, essential, I don't like the, I don't like the term at all. I think essential is something that yeah, I you won't, you won't die. <laughs> exactly. I, I like to define what's essential for me yeah. and not, not, not letting, letting somebody else. Yeah. For me, like, like definitely the, 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 the categorization of essential or not essential was laughable. Yes. You know, yes. Liquor stores are essential. Yes. <laughs> cannabis, cannabis stores, cannabis stores in places that cannabis is, is, is which again, I'm completely support that, but it's like, you're going to have that be essential and, and not schools, schools, not essential. Um, so, so, so the, the it's interesting point you make about like, you know, nowhere in the country you're going to get the ability to in short period of time say, Oh, we, we're going to defund the schools if you know, they're not open. Right. But if parents were to unenroll, then they de facto get defunded because I think most states, the, 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 the home, the, the homeschooling, sort of like basically the money goes back to the state coffers. They don't, it depends on the number of students yeah. you have. Right? I, think that is, I think that's the normal system. Of course, if schools are really hurting, I think the law would get changed. Well, sure, but at least you put some pressure. And I, I'm surprised yeah, yeah. that that has not been at all anywhere a big campaign on this. I've been, I, I've talked to some people like, shouldn't you have some campaigns on like homeschool your kids? If, they, if the state's asking you to homeschool your kids, homeschool your kids um, and, and let, let everybody you know, be honest about it. But nowhere you see nowhere the the the, the fight for for, yeah. for that. Well, I mean, so you know, there there's a list of government employees where people love them based upon the ideals that they associate with associate them with. So you know, you know, veterans, of course, firemen, police until recently, <laughs> and teachers, right? And of course, healthcare workers. So these are occupations where because what they do what they do sounds good. That or you know, and of course, soldiers in general, not just veterans, but they do sounds good, and so they get a lot of love just for existing. So yeah, I mean, the number of times where I've seen big signs around saying, like, like during the lockdown, saying we are so grateful to our wonderful teachers. This is a time where I have to say, look, I'm actually teaching my kids. Where's my sign? <laughs> right. No, no one's putting up signs saying, "Thanks, Brian, for going and doing the job the teachers are getting paid to do, and you're not getting paid to do it, but you're doing it anyway." So and, and yeah, you know, I, 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 you know, I also like I. I have to say, I know some people don't like the idea of Stockholm Syndrome, and I'm a big fan of it. So yeah, I think that's a lot of what's going on. And people are here getting totally ripped off and teachers are basically giving them next to nothing in exchange for large amounts of money. And yet because teachers are usually personally likable and nice, people want it to persist. But you know, like if your garbage man was a nice guy, but he stopped picking up your garbage because of COVID, you, would, you, know, you wouldn't keep paying him. Right, right, and, and, and that's uh, so. You, you you like to use the word. Uh, you you told me once they would like to res rescue the word austerity. You think austerity yes. is a good word, and you like defund stuff. So so I think that there's a lot of talk about defunding police these days. So so you're pro defunding police, pro defunding the education system, pro def defunding generally, right? Yeah. So you know, defunding is greatly underrated. Right? Like is it you know just austerity? I mean, it's kind of funny because you know like on you know, defunding is sort of the new positive you know, term with a positive connotation for austerity. But again, like the idea is just what like my dad was like in the 80s. So you go and say, hey, dad, can I have 20 bucks? 
first question, what do you need it for? And then it's like, well, and what happened to the last $20 I gave you? Uh, right? And, uh, and like, what can I expect to see for my money? Uh, right? And these are good questions for anyone that is handing out even their own money to ask. And we're handing out somebody else's money. You're handing out taxpayer money, donor money. It is a breach of fiduciary duty not to ask questions like this. Right? If you are running a charity and you don't ask hard questions like, well, how, what do you need the money for? What happened to the last money I gave you? What have you accomplished? What do I, like, you know, how will I know whether this is working? You aren't doing your job. And I say the same thing for whenever when government officials are handing out taxpayer dollars. These are the questions that you should always be asking to find out, like, are taxpayers getting their money's worth or are they getting ripped off? And to say, well, that's a mean question when teachers need their salaries. Like, well, isn't there, this is not charity. They're supposed to be doing a job in exchange for this money. And if they don't do their job anymore, then it's totally fair to say, well, we don't want to pay money to have people do nothing. Yeah, that, that's, that, that, that's uh, the, especially now, if they're actually not even going to provide the daycare. So, yeah. so that, that's the part that's really crazy. All right, last question for you. And that's maybe a little provo pro provoking a little bit. Um, you wrote about this wonderful idea of open borders, immigration being a completely, completely no laws of immigration anywhere. Just people can move back and forth. That would be amazing for the world. That would, that would increase GDP by by enormous amount. And, and and it's hard to disagree with that notion in a sort of hypothetical level. You go through a lot of arguments supporting that and arguments against it and so on. It's, it's, I recommend the book highly. After a pandemic, do you is there any change in your in your thinking about immigration? Is there anything that gives you pause or give you second thoughts? Right. So the main thing I would say is that tourism is more dangerous than I thought. <laughs> Here, because here's the thing. For an immigrant, even a seasonal immigrant, if you were to say you have to go through a two-week quarantine on, on both sides of the trip in order to do it, almost every immigrant would still say yes because there's enormous gain to them. For tourism, on the other hand, if you were to go and do that, then actually I probably would greatly deter tourism. Right. So again, of course, you could do, you could try to have high-speed COVID testing or something like that. But how do you know there won't be another disease? You know, like, you know, that's that's hard to say. So anyway, what I say is that um, you know, or just just to step back. So you might take a look at this and then say, see, so this is why we just shouldn't have anyone ever come to our country anymore because we don't have a, like we don't have a bad disease right now. Uh, the only place is really going to come is going to be from another country. So if we just stop letting people in, then we're safe, right? And but I say that's not really true. Do you know why? because you would also have to prevent anyone from your country from leaving and coming back. So it's no, it actually is not enough just to keep people out. You actually would have to turn your country into the old Soviet Union where people either can't leave or if they do leave, they're exiled, can't return. All right, now when you say, well, look, all right, that's ridiculous. Then why don't we go and have testing and quarantining and so on? In which case, okay, well, fine. Maybe there, there's some use for that, but that is... You know, but you know, that would be actually a very minor barrier to immigration for work purposes, which is, of course, the main reason why people want to migrate, because it's a, you know, it is a substantial upfront cost for an enormous, overwhelming benefit. So I just don't think it would make very much difference. Um, again, in the, end, in the end, I would still say that um, you know, if you, you know, like if there could have been some very carefully crafted limits on mobility early on, again, like. You know, like, like if China had actually said foreigners can't leave Wuhan either, they're, 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 there's a one-month quarantine, sorry. Right? If they had done that, I would have been nervous about the peace of the world. But, in turn, but knowing what I know now, I think that actually really would have had a high chance of actually saving the rest of the world from, the, from these horrors. And, and of course, the amount of gratitude China would be getting for that would be less than zero, I think. That's right. 
<laughs> you said there'd probably be a lot of people that were there, stuck there, and they were saying, you know, like, or if you could find one American who died there because they weren't able to go and get high-quality American medical treatment outside of Wuhan, you know, then that could be an international incident, right? But still, so you something like that where there's a small, where there's a, you know, a reasonably small area where you actually can do enormous good by going and having this, you know, this temporary abridgment of human freedom for a modest number of people, do something like that. You know, to me, like, that's not crazy, at least. But I think what we have done is crazy. And what, so, we're, continue, what we're just going to continue doing, I think, is, good, is crazy. That seems to be the case, right? Right, that seems to be the case. Um, so what's the, what's the estimate, again, for, for if we had open borders everywhere in terms of how much richer the world would be? Yeah, so it's sort of, sort of like a median estimate is something like a doubling of the production of mankind. Again, this is, you know, like, you know, no reasonable person says this would happen immediately because the way you get that large increase is by moving large populations from low productivity countries to high, high productivity countries. And again, it's on the order of billions of people, which is not feasible dur uh, during the course of a month or a year or even five years. But over the course of 50 years, moving billions of people is totally feasible, right? And people say, how it can't be done. No, it can be done. In fact, China and India have had hundreds of millions of people move just within their own countries over the past few decades. So that you couldn't do this all, all over the surface of the earth is just wrong. Uh, it's you know, totally realistic to think that we can move billions of people over that long, long period, right? And again, and then like the kinds of fears that people have about moving that many people are reasonable at the, at the duration of a month or a year. They're not reasonable at the duration of decades where there's plenty of time to build housing and new businesses and everything else for all the people that are coming. And, you know, my point of making that is that, is that you know, I may be willing, willing to trade off um, um, double the GDP over a period of time for for uh yeah even with a higher risk of a disease spreading around and killing a certain number of people because i don't know part of me also thinks that that's unavoidable right we have we have a and, and i think that if you double gdp life expectancy is going to grow by so many other reasons uh people are going to get better and like you know live longer and so on that that if you live long long enough right something's going to kill you and including covid and cancer and so on and and the point is that I think that those the, the the I wouldn't give up on on the immigration benefits. There are a lot of diseases that epidemiologists classify as diseases of poverty. They're basically diseases where they mostly originate and uh, and spread in places where people are poor for wide range of reasons. So, but of course, once they originate and start spreading an area with a lot of poor people, they can go and spread through contagion to richer areas. So I would say this is a reason to want to speed poor countries through the, poor, the, the period of poverty to get them out of that danger zone, not only for themselves, but also so that you at least wind up reducing the risk of a lot of diseases, which one day could actually affect you. That's right. That's right. Brian, thank you so much. And uh, good, luck, good luck with the homeschooling. All right. Yes. Yeah, so always great seeing you in face. So uh, now more than ever. Exactly. Bye. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Policy at Macombs. 